Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. When I told some of my guitar playing friends who my guest was today, they freaked out, especially my friend Todd Costas. He's very animated, and he's like, that guy's a beast, and which is a good term, and uh, he's a legend, and he's a legendary guitarist, and he has an art show coming up, and he just came out with a new album, and my guest is Joe Satriani. How you doing, Joe? Hey, how's it going? Good, man. So, I want to talk about your career, but I want to talk about this art show, because it's fascinating. I love, I love when musicians branch out. I know you also have a comic book, but I love when musicians, you only, these people see you as this guitarist. But then they sit there and they go, well, wait a second, he does art. Tell me about the art show, because I love this kind of shit. Oh, wow. It's a, you know, it's a long uh, story with funny twists and turns, but I'll see if I can sort of crystallize it for you. So, uh, you know, I grow up uh, youngest of five kids. My older sisters are art majors. They get degrees in art and, and fine art. They become artists uh, for their whole life. I wind up marrying uh, a woman who is getting her degree in art in San Francisco. Um, and along the way, uh, we're blessed with a son, and he gets a degree in art and filmmaking as well. So I'm always surrounded by these creative artists and lots of art materials always piling up in the house somewhere. Uh, during this whole period of growing up, I'm always drawing, uh, but since music is my main thing, I don't spend a whole lot of time on it. But then I think around uh, late 80s, uh, solo career sort of taken off, and I start to very slowly introduce some of my whimsical you know, sketches into CD booklets and then guitar picks, then guitar straps, then uh, tour T-shirts and posters. And then about, uh, ooh, boy, 2000. 13, I put out uh, a book of uh, digitally manipulated art that came from scanning all of my sketches. I released this book uh, and we, we, uh, we, put, we sell it directly to the fans. Um, but as soon as I'm done with it, I think, okay, I got to do something else. I really want to get into uh, the real world with this art. I want to get my, you know, my fingertips <laughs> Uh, dirty <laughs> with paint and everything. So I asked my wife to teach me like everything that I should know about how to use a canvas, how to use uh, paint, acrylics, oils, solvents, what brushes do I use, things like that. All this stuff that I never really knew about. And I spent some time generating, I don't know, about a uh, hundred or so works of art. And then out of nowhere, uh, Corey and Ravi from Scene 4 Art Collective in Los Angeles reach out and they've got this project going where they uh, they photograph uh, artists in in the dark playing their instruments while they're wearing gloves laced with LED lights uh, that are controlled sort of remotely and then they this time-lapse photography uh, is then manipulated by Ravi uh, and they make these just breathtaking prints. So while we're doing this photo session uh, and we're taking a break, I just happened to talk to Corey about these other things that I've been doing. And I said, I'm really excited. I finally, you know, I'm, I'm painting with, with acrylics and oils. And I start showing him stuff and he says, oh, we should do a collaboration. Let's do some mixed media stuff. We'll get your scanned artwork We'll get Ravi's manipulation. We'll put things together. We'll print them. We'll send you those prints. And then you paint on top of them. I thought it was just like the craziest thing. And, and we, we got very successful with that run and got the attention uh, of Christian uh, at Wentworth Gallery, who then commissioned me to do, I think at one point he said, I'd love to have 300 pieces. So that's a lot. <laughs> I think uh, to date, maybe he's got about 130 uh, and we're, we're working on more. Um, and we did guitars uh, and canvases of just, I mean, all the way up to 40 by 40. That's so exciting for me to do that. And so it's been a great uh, opportunity to uh, to finally be able to put artwork up uh, in this particular media on canvas. Uh, and then they hang it in these galleries and I go 
and I get to hang out with the fans and talk about it. And it's really something. And it's just so, uh, it's so exciting. Was it, was it frustrating for you? Cause you're such a master at the guitar. You've been playing forever. Everyone, you know, you're so respected. Was it frustrated when you first started picking up the, the brush and it wasn't like, cause it takes work. Were you just like, why could you pick up a guitar and do anything with the brush though? With how long did it take you to get into that learning process? And did you get pissed at yourself a bunch during it? Oh yeah. I think it's the, the parallels. I mean, that's a good point that you bring up because the parallels are, are so close. Uh, I mean, most of the time for a musician, we're screwing up. It's sort of like, I remember reading somewhere that baseball was a game of failure. And I thought, no, I think guitar playing is a game of failure. <laughs> most of the time you're screwing up and people don't hear it. That what they hear is what's on the album, which is your best version that you can muster that day, you know? Um, so you, you don't publish all your errors, you know? Um, so uh, in, in a way, it, it, it's very much like doing a guitar solo uh, in front of, you know, 20,000 people, you, you're kind of prepared, you kind of know what you want, but you really don't know what's going to happen after the first note. And you have to be ready to improvise because stuff's going to happen that you weren't expecting, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so as I start painting, I go, well, you know, I wanted it to look like that, but it turned out like that. So I guess I got to work with that. And you just keep working with it. Um, but yeah, there are times where you, you scream obscenities and you, you know, and you just, what did I do? And then you wait a minute and you come back and you go, hey, that's actually kind of better than what I thought. <laughs> My wife sometimes wouldn't let me put together any of that furniture because, you know, when it's put it together, I'd be screaming. So we'd, we'd pay her nephew to do it because she would, she's figured I'd be dropping F-bombs all day and just couldn't figure it out. Yeah. So tell me, tell me, how, how did this whole wonderful career start? When did you pick up the guitar? Oh, uh, well... One of uh, my sisters uh, was a folk guitarist, so there was a guitar hanging around. She played a nylon folk guitar, and she would write songs and perform at her high school. Um, and so I was kind of used to that. But at the same time, I was a drummer, actually. So starting at around nine years of age, I really wanted to be like Ringo and Charlie Watts. That's what I was aspiring to be. Um, I took lessons, you know, a guy came over the house, used to teach me in the evenings uh, once a week. Uh, but after a couple of years, I just wasn't feeling it. Like, you know, it's like a sport. You, you try out football, baseball, basketball, track, you know, until the one feels right. And I just, I remember thinking after a couple of years, like, I love music. I can read music. I, I know everything about it, but how come I can't get my four limbs to cooperate the way I hear other drummers, you know, play. Um, and so I started to drift away from the idea of being a drummer. And, and, you know, coincidentally, at the same time, I'm watching my sister have this really more personal relationship with an instrument. And, you know, when, a, when you live in a house and there's seven people in there and you have to practice your drums, they let you know how much you suck. <laughs> <laughs> especially being the youngest kid, you know, and um, so, but I thought, wow, you know, my sister can take the guitar, she can go to the corner of a backyard and quietly play, and I thought, that's, that's a lot easier than drums, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, around that time, uh, my older siblings were bringing me music of the mid and late 60s all the time, because I was too young to really be part of that movement, but that's how I got introduced to you know, Cream, The Who, Led Zeppelin, and then uh, and Jimi Hendrix. Once I heard Hendrix, I was a complete Hendrix fan. I was just I just thought it was the greatest sound I ever heard. And uh, but the day that he died was actually the the day that I decided to be a guitarist. I quit the football team. I went home and over dinner I stood up in front of everybody and I said, "Jimi Hendrix died today. He was my hero. I am going to dedicate." my life to being a guitarist and then of course mayhem you know <laughs> proceeded in the satriani kitchen um but when the dust settled uh you know i i was put to task that if i was gonna you know switch from drums to guitar that they were expecting results and and hard work and so that's when it started though i started as a beginner uh in september of 1970 
and um, yeah, never never look back. It's really, really hard to play guitar. I gotta say, you know, and and I know this from being a teacher as well. It's not easy. It's an awkward instrument. You either take to it or you don't. And um, there's and and my experience being uh, a young musician, but a failed drummer taught me that you you know you can be a musician at heart and and you can have all the talent in your 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 body and your and your mind uh but you've got to find the instrument that offers the least amount of resistance <laughs> you know if you want to succeed uh a good a, a good point would be like uh, conductors very often conductors are not really good you, you know players uh, uh but that doesn't mean that they don't have that supreme talent of being able to stand in front of an orchestra with a piece totally memorized and you know, uh, and guide them to some beautiful musical moment. So uh, it's a funny thing. Uh, managing your recognition of your your talent, but finding the right instrument. So how do you take it? You know, when do you know, you know, you, you say, I'm going to be a guitarist. This is my life. When do you know that you made the right decision? I mean, do you just feel, do you practice all the time? I mean, how did you get to that point because it must take dedication, and, and you're making pretty big, uh, big, a uh, big announcement at a younger age. Like, hey, I'm going to do this, and then you know you're the youngest, and I'm the youngest. So if you don't do it, they're going to give you shit the rest of your life. But uh, how how do you get there? What do you, how do you start to get to become what you've become? Well, you have to practice. It's pretty simple. There are the obvious things about the instrument that every beginner has to go through. They have to learn the notes and the chords uh, and the scales. Um, they have to get familiar with the instrument physically. In other words, that, that's going to take practicing every day, not necessarily hours and hours, just constant uh, consecutive practice sessions every single day, like clockwork, uh, going over things carefully um, and, and uh, you know, setting up a, um, a routine where you build a foundation of familiarity uh, and knowledge uh, is extremely important because you can be really smart about things and still feel awkward because you haven't spent enough time actually playing the thing. You know, they say 10,000 hours. It's kind of like that. Uh, and it takes a while because everyone's different. They have a different life and different responsibilities, family, school, work. And, and so everyone's got to basically look at their situation and, and manage it. But you, it's basically practicing the obvious stuff every day. Um, and then I think a really, really important thing for musicians to remember is that most musicians, uh, you know, our job is to make music for people. So you need to practice doing that because, you know, you can practice your scales and your exercises uh, forever and and never develop that ability to play a song in front of somebody it doesn't matter if it's your grandmother or you're at carnegie hall or at madison square garden it really doesn't matter it's a thing it's a technique to be able to get in front of somebody and make music to make them happy uh, or to send a message to them and the way that you practice that is by taking that gig to play at the kindergarten the old folks home, this, uh, you know, this, this school get together, this just like whatever you, whatever comes say, I got to try that. I got to try making music in this situation and see if I can do the job. You know what I mean? Uh, you have to s learn to play with people. In other words, you get in a room with three other musicians, they are going to play completely different than you. And you have to learn how to sit in with them and make music with them and take all the, push and pull that they're giving you all the different ideas that's a technique you're not going to find that in a book you know what i mean it's just like performing uh in front of a a kindergarten i mean good luck the kids are just crazy right <laughs> and i've done it and and but it's fun because you realize well this is i have to figure out how to get my music across while these kids are just like you know exploding <laughs> with energy and short attention span uh the, these are the important things. And even uh, at my age right now, I practice every day. Uh, things are, are always different. When, when you're young and, and you look at a guitar and you don't know where anything is, 
you're really focused on, you know, where is E flat melodic minor, you know, everywhere on the guitar harmonized in seconds, thirds, fourths, fifths, sixths, and sevenths. That's an undertaking that might take you a month, you know, when you're 14. Uh, as you get older, if you did that work, you never think about it again, because every time you pick up the guitar, you go, oh, yeah, that's where it is. I can play that anytime I want. And all the other scales, because I put in, you know, the, the homework. So uh, the, the homework really does help. Um, and I I would say that you, you don't have to be everything uh, un, unless that is what you're trying to eventually bring to your audience. So a good example would be a blues guitar player. A blues guitar player doesn't really have to know E-flat melodic minor harmonized uh, in every way for everybody because that never comes up in even the largest blues repertoire. But what they have to do is they have to memorize the great, fantastic repertoire of all the best blues, and they have to internalize it and become natural with it, be able to quote it for their audience. Because in general, that's what their job is, get in front of an audience and remind them of all the great blues artists of the last hundred years. You know, it's kind of like part of the gig. So like a, if you're in a dance band, if you don't make people dance, then you're failing. So right. then ultimately you have to repeat a lot of the musical elements that everybody else does in dance bands. That's just part of the gig. So, um, but if you're like me and some of my friends like uh, Steve Vai or John Petrucci, our music uses everything. <laughs> so we in fact do need to know every scale everywhere and we have to learn how to play in every time signature because our, our music does actually use those elements. Uh, and, uh, and and so it's, yeah, our jobs are different. <laughs> well, you, know, you, you talk about, you know, practice and stuff like that. Well, you, you know, everyone knows you were a great guitar teacher. How does one know when they're good enough to teach? I mean, you know, it's like, you know, did you sit there and say, okay, I'm really good. I can teach people. How did you get into teaching? And, and that, that's, that shows a lot of confidence in, in your talent because... You know, everyone, we always remember the crappy teacher from elementary school. You know, like, I never liked that person. But then there's a great teacher. I had an English teacher like that. He taught me to, you know, to express myself in writing. And I always remember him. And his name's Dr. Dwyer. But how did you know one was ready to, uh, for you to teach? Oh, well, it, it really came from the outside. Uh, I had just started playing. I'd playing maybe less than a year. I'd already played at a high school dance and a couple of them, maybe some parties in town. And uh, uh, I guess I was about uh, 14, going on 15. And uh, I get, no, it was, no, by then I think I was 15, yeah. I just turned 15. And some kid knocked on my front door and said, oh, I saw you at the, the dance. Like, could you teach me how to play? And I was like, uh, all right, come on in. <laughs> and... I, you know, it wasn't that weird to me, the idea of teaching, because my mother was a professional school teacher her whole life. And at that time, my older sisters had started as art teachers in, uh, in the neighboring towns as well. So the idea of teaching was something that was just part of the family thing. So I thought, well, I guess I, I think I know how to do that. So I just sat down with this kid and I said, well, show me what you can do. And I thought, well, you should know how to do this. And one thing led to another. And you know, he told his friends and more kids saw me playing around town and found out that I was teaching those kids. And so and then one day this kid shows up with a guitar in one hand and a pack of strings in the other. And he goes, hi, my name's Steve Vai. You teach my best friend. Could you teach me how to play? <laughs> I was like, OK, come on in. <laughs> it was really quite innocent. <laughs> Now, now, at what point in your life did you decide to really concentrate on instrumental? I mean, is that something that was always from the beginning? Or, I mean, because everyone thinks of, you know, oh, yeah, we're going to play Led Zeppelin, or we're going to, you know, or this, or this, or this. When did you kind of say, okay, this is the route I'm going? I mean, did that just come to you, or how that happen? No, I was always thinking, I'd, you know, I would be like a Jimmy Page, you know, in a, in a four-piece band with a lead singer. And, uh, and I, that's what I was doing up until uh, around the mid 80s. Uh, and 
I was getting frustrated with this band I was in because we were going nowhere and working harder than ever. Uh, we, uh, we used to rehearse around the corner from Fantasy Records in, in Berkeley, down by the flats in Berkeley. And we, we were in a warehouse, a small warehouse, like a barn, uh, that was stuck to the outside of Knopf Publishing. And there was a big dumpster outside where we used to park our cars and go out and have a cigarette and, and, and a drink between rehearsing. And it was always filled with reject books that they're putting out. And they, they focused on how to do books with tear-out sheets for you to do anything, one of which was start your own company, you know, uh, get a divorce, uh, you know, learn to be an architect, whatever. So um, we're just sitting there talking about stuff, and I'm going through these books that are sort of falling out of the dumpster. And there's one that says, you know, start your own business. And I'm, I'm looking through it, and it says publishing business and record company, and I'm thinking, well, this is really interesting. I'm going to take this home. And uh, then we decide to take a break for about, I don't know, a month or so. And I get home and I get it in my mind. I am going to start my own record company, my own published company. I'm going to record some little crazy EP and just to see what it's like. Because, you know, we've been trying to get a record deal for like five years and we failed miserably every time we would go down to L.A. to do a showcase. So uh, I do all that. It's easy. You know, 12 bucks, go down to the courthouse, bam, Strange Beautiful Music Publishing finished <laughs> i'm the president <laughs> so uh anyway i show up at rehearsals and i've got this ep that i've made and i go look guys we could do this we could just skip the record company and do what i just did you know and they're not really interested so i eventually i leave this band that uh i created and uh this is the telling moment so uh i, I couldn't give this record away first i got to tell you it was the weirdest record it was a 12-inch, 45 RPM, EP amount of music, all really weird avant-garde. No drums, no keyboards, no bass, just guitar, you know. And um, I, I think I had to print maybe uh, 100 of them. I, I maybe sold 20, and the rest I, I mailed around the world, just like, please, just stock it, you know. Keep the money, uh, whatever. And uh, so I'm in this world. Oh. It's going nowhere. Hold on a second. I, I got to do something for you. One moment. <laughs> and except no. Let, oh, and just go back to you. Oh, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, there. So, um, so I'm at this rehearsal in San Francisco for a band that's going nowhere. And uh, Bobby Vega is the bass player, amazing bass player. And Bobby Vega is sitting in the, in the room there and he's reading a guitar player magazine. And he goes, hey, Joe, you're famous. And I go, what are you, what are you talking about? He goes, y you've got a review of your album here. He goes, you have an album? It's like, and I'm, I'm like, well, yeah, but like no one knows I have an album. So he goes, it says here, and he reads this paragraph and I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, that's who I am. I'm not this guy stuck in a basement you know, in San Francisco, rehearsing with a band that's going nowhere. I'm the guy they're talking about, this avant-garde guitar player who has his own record company and his own publishing company. And we had a good laugh about it, but I left and took my gear with me that night. And I, I went home and I thought, OK, now what I have to do is I have to record a real album. And that started the idea of me becoming a solo artist. And I really thought that I'd do it on the side, I'd continue teaching, and I wouldn't think about the, you know, the, the, how frightening the future could be for somebody taking this kind of career path. But uh, once I finished that second record, which was called Not of This Earth, and it was a full-length album, it wound up uh, at Relativity Records through Steve Vai, who said to me, you're crazy, you know, you should get this you know, uh, you should get a record deal with this because this company just saw, just signed me to do Flexible. And that Flexible album of Steve's was way stranger than mine, you know, far less commercial. So he said, look, if they're signing me, they're definitely going to sign you. And I was like, yeah, go ahead, give it to them. I wasn't expecting much. But what happened was a great association started from that 
uh, little moment. But it, I really trace it back to that moment where Bobby Vegas said, hey, you're famous. And we all had a good laugh about it because we were literally like in a dark subterranean teeny damp basement in the missing district of San Francisco. And I mean, for a musician, it was the epitome of going nowhere. <laughs> now, how hard is it just to write instrumental? Because, you know, people, you know, people write song music and lyrics, but instrumental, it has to be really good music to keep the people into it and which you've proved. But I mean, when you sit, when you, in the early ages, when you sat down to write, I mean, did you, would you actually write the notes out or would you just get up and start jamming and, and, and flow with it? Oh yeah. Well, it's, it's different uh, each time. Um, you know, sometimes I might be, you know, in the living room sitting at the piano and so I'm just sort of playing and I get an idea about a, an event, uh, a person, uh, something that really happened, something that I'm imagining um, and it could be serious, uh, heartbreaking, or it could be whimsical and simple, you know, it could be just a physical feeling, but I kind of follow it. I, I never discriminate, uh, you know, against the size of an idea. I, I, I find that you should just go with it. Inspiration is you're so lucky when you're inspired, you, you better not let go of it, no matter what it is. So um, now sometimes uh, you know, I'll write it down, uh, you know, on a napkin. If I've got manuscript, I'll write it down on manuscript. If I'm if I'm in a studio and I've got something to record with the phone all the way to having my Pro Tools rig up, I'll, I'll get busy. But it's a discipline to not let go of an idea and, and to make sure that you catalog it. You know, you, you document it, you catalog it. Uh, because the, upon reflection and returning to ideas, you begin to realize their, their true value and their, their worth and, and how important they are. Um, because, you know, it's the typical thing. Somebody's taking a walk like Beethoven, right? He used to work out all the details in, you know, three-hour walks, you know, uh, uh, every, every single day. And then he'd go back to his room and he'd write down everything that he imagined, you know. Some people get those great ideas when they're driving or they're in the shower or, you know, they're doing something other than, you know, concentrating on music and the idea comes. So um, I think uh, that I learned early in high school from uh, my music teacher, Bill Westcott, to associate sounds uh, numerically so that I had a way of remembering in sort of mathematical form what I was imagining. So if, if I'm walking home on a hike and I'm imagining the sound of my head, I can go, you know, seven, one, seven, it's five, three, two. And I can kind of remember that numerical thing. And then when I get home, I can go, okay, pick up a bass or a guitar or keyboards and go, okay, seven, one, seven, four. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Um, that's what people do. If they don't have perfect pitch, they have to be taught what's called relative pitch and, that really saved me as a young kid uh, because I didn't start music, you know, before I was six years old, which is when you develop your, your perfect pitch. Now, Surfing with the Alien was your, became a big hit. How did that album come about? And did you ever think it would be like, it changed your life? I mean, if you think about it, I mean, we, it, it's so funny that when you hear like, you know, some people will write a book and it becomes a bestseller and they, they didn't know what to expect. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, how did, how did, I mean, was it an easy album to make? What was, and what did you expect from it when making it? Well, it was a difficult album to make. Uh, leading up to it, it was kind of fun. I, I took a job uh, playing lead guitar with the great Kin Band, which was a local band in Berkeley, California, really good American rock band for, you know, of, of the eighties. Um, I'd known them, uh, as friends because my band the squares used to open up for them they had like a big platinum multi-platinum album uh in the in the mid 80s and um uh, they had asked me to join the band a few years earlier and i declined to stay with the squares so they called me again the week that they called me was the week that i really was struggling to pay off the debt of recording not of this earth which was you know financed by my own company and uh so I said yes. Uh, all my economic issues got solved, and I was in this band for about a year. And while I was 
touring the U.S. with them playing, I wrote the album Surfing with the Alien in all these hotel rooms uh, around the U.S. And then uh, at the end of the year, um, I sat down and um, I had a uh, like a showcase, I guess you'd call it, at the China Club in New York City in front of all the guys from Relativity Records who were really wondering like is this guy gonna you know be the next steve by or whatever because <laughs> you know they they had signed steve they had john mclaughlin alan holdsworth they had all these great guitar players and i showed up and i certainly didn't look the part you know and so I, they wanted to know what are you really going to do before we sign you to a full album deal and so i played them a bunch of songs that i had been working on while being on the road you know satch boogie crushing day you know things like that uh songs that were getting ready for the surfing record and that did it. that just playing those songs in front of them in that little club that evening in manhattan you know cinched the deal and i told the guys look i want to make an album that celebrates all uh, my influences and what i love about guitar playing and it's going to be a very upbeat positive sounding album you know and and I, I need to point out that the Relativity Records and their other label, Combat, were making uh, really great business selling some of the most intense thrash metal you'd ever heard, you know, um, really crazy stuff. So uh, I, I remember saying, look, guys, I'm not like that. I know that's what you guys do all the time. But that's, that's not what I want to do. And uh, but uh, the president of the company liked what he heard and what he saw. So I got the green light to to start recording in earnest it was difficult to make the record because the budget was so small it was only 13 grand and uh we wound up spending twice as much and then another half of that <clears throat> budget i wound up actually bartering for so i was working uh with producer sandy perlman he was trying to finish um the imaginos record for blue oyster cult in the same room that i was trying to get into to finish and so he said, well, if you come and you help me fix guitar parts, you know, for a few hours every day, uh, usually it was like midnight to 4 a.m. Uh, he said, then I'll give you our, I'll pay you hour for hour and you can use the studio to finish your album when we're not using it. And I did that for about three or four months. And that was the only way I got the album done. So it was actually kind of traumatic. By the time we were done, I kind of thought like, I bet they're going to run me out of town after this. <laughs> so, you know, it'll be the last album they'll ever let me and, and, and my co-producer, John Coonerberry, ever make. And But just the opposite happened. People loved the album. And, and it, as you said, it did change my life. How, do you, how does an album like that find listeners? Because it's not like the Internet now. You know, you, know, you see stuff on YouTube goes viral. You're like, someone's sitting on a toilet and it gets like three million hits. You know, it's like, wait a second. But for you, and once again, radio, rock, and we I grew up on it. You know, it's not like people don't weren't thinking. I mean, they, people didn't think outside the box. How did you, and the, how did you market that? Like, how did you get your name out? Because it's a concept that people hadn't, hadn't fully grasped yet, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seemed like every, you know, 20, 15 years, you know, there, there'd be an, one instrumental hit. You know, sleepwalk in, in or or walk don't run or you know the surf music stuff from the late fifties, uh, and then every, something would come along like Edgar Winter, Frankenstein. You know, just like these things would happen. Jeff Beck with the Blow by Blow album, um, and it would just sort of capture the moment in 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 that world. You know, um, so what happened with me was that when this record came out, there were a few DJs around the U.S. Uh, who decided this was really cool and they loved it and they would play it and they'd play like the whole album. So Redbeard in Texas, uh, the guys in, in New York, The Loop in Chicago, um, uh, KLOS in, in LA, uh, they, they just started playing it. And this is when DJs could suggest to the station, I want to play this, this is great music. And say every time I play it, you know, the, the phones light up. Um, and so that's really different than uh, what's happened. Uh, what happened almost immediately after that, to tell you the truth, once 
uh, conglomerates got together and really owned all the stations, there was one person trying to create one playlist for the whole country. And, and this was to sell advertising. So it's, you know, I didn't have my head in the sand about radio. I knew it was about, it's like magazines. They, they, it's an advertising model. And so the, the magazines and the radio stations need to reach as many like-minded people as, as they can all at once. So if they play one kind of music and they can sort of package that, and put it everywhere, then they can go to their advertisers and, and they can say, look, we will reach your target audience for this kind of product everywhere, you know, 24 seven. Um, this was not the case when surfing came out. It, things were still kind of fluid and each town had a DJ that had a mind of his own. <laughs> and, and these DJs, these men and women really helped my career. Uh, they pulled me out of obscurity and would play the stuff. And it was really fantastic. It, it really had such a big impact on me. So now how do you parlay that to the road? I mean, you know, how do you sit there and all of a sudden say, you know, I'm going to, I want to take this on the road. Your, your album's getting popular, but it's like, once again, it's a market where people aren't always sure. Like, well, wait a second is, you know, you take, you take someone who doesn't know your music and you're like, there's no singing. You know, you get that idiot. Oh, there's no singing. I mean, how did, yeah. how was that in the early days when you were performing? Was it hard to get a people to come out and see you live, even though you had a hit record? Yeah. It was really hard. Uh, I started in January of 88. I gave Kirk Hammett his last lesson, and that was my last lesson as a teacher, actually. And it was like the first week in January. And I said, I got to go on the road because the record company wants me to do this live. And I said, I have no idea what to do. I've never been in an instrumental band and certainly not been a leader of any band, you know, where I had to be the guy talking to the audience. So I, you know, it was kind of funny. We laughed about it and we thought, well, let's, let's just see what happens, you know? And, uh, so we were doing like two sets a night playing small clubs that only hold a few hundred people. After two weeks, I was losing, maybe I was looking to lose about eight grand a week. It was not going well. And I got a call from my old friends at Bill Graham presents in San Francisco who happened to be in New York uh, that year uh, and, and the year prior working with Mick Jagger. And I get this call and my friend who was my former agent says to me, I, he, he's laughing and he goes, you're not going to believe this, but how would you like to audition for Mick Jagger? And we, yeah, you know, we laughed for about a minute. And then I said, well, I'm not going to get the gig, but I, you've got to let me in there. I just have to do it. I just want to say hi to Mick, tell him how much I love the stones and maybe play a song. So I go down there, I do it. I get the gig. It's just like freaking get the gig. So suddenly I'm with these great musicians. I'm hanging out with Mick in Manhattan. And um, I got my own story in Rolling Stone magazine. I'm on a cover of Guitar Magazines. And just that album just was unstoppable. It, it's crazy. I mean, it just, it just, the album stayed on the charts for the whole year or more. And uh, it, that, it was fantastic. And during that year, I did two tours with Mick and uh, all did my first set of really heavy touring with my trio. And we got to the point where we could play just one set a night and we would, you know, we could play theaters and it was really something. So I had to learn really fast, like how to be a performer. And also, as you brought up, what do you do when there's no singing? How do you act? <laughs> I didn't want be like those jazz or fusion bands that I love so much that would just stand absolutely still and just not perform because I was a rock and roller, you know? And, and so I thought, no, I'm going to, I'm just going to act like it's Led Zeppelin, except there's no Robert Plant. <laughs> now, now when you play live, you know, and everyone loves a guitar solo, how does, how does a guitar solo, I mean, what is the or origin of a guitar solo? Because, you know, we will go to a concert and I just saw Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Uh, a few weeks ago and his whole band everyone's doing different you know different solos like how does it come for you like a guitar where does a guitar solo come from um i like to think that a guitar solo should be in an instrumental should be a very unique expression of the meaning of the song and this is different from like when i'm in chicken foot you know when i'm in chicken foot 
Sammy Hagar is telling you what the song is about. You don't need any more information than what the lyrics are suggesting, you know? Uh, so, you know, um, when he's, when he's singing, uh, you know, sexy little thing, I mean, he just lays the whole thing out for you. You know what I mean? Or he's singing my kind of girl or, uh, you know, even soap on a rope. I mean, he's telling you the whole story. So the, the solo is, I always felt was more like about the camaraderie of the band and the image and the style of the band. And in that way, like, you know, slashing guns and roses can just be slash all the time. And he does a fantastic job of, of doing that, of capturing the, the world of, you know, guns and roses in, in, in all those different songs. And they, and they're, the variety of their music is actually pretty stunning. Uh, now, but for an instrumental, there are no lyrics, obviously. So everything that gets recorded has to really help the meaning of the song. And it can't be a repetition of the other nine songs on the album. It doesn't work that way. In a, in a vocal album, you can have the soloist who comes in and does this thing. And you go, yeah, you're like, you know, that that's that, you know, that's, that's Joe being Joe. And then they go back to the singer singing this other subject. The, the solo needs to be a very direct expression of the meaning of the song when you're doing an instrumental. Now, Elephant of Mars is your latest album. You've recorded yep. a lot of albums. How yeah. do you keep coming up with ideas? I mean, it's, it's it's guitaring. I mean, how do you, for yourself, because you must sometimes pick up the guitar and start doing a jam and go, you know what? I think I may have done that on my fifth album. Like, does it, I mean, do you, I mean, how do you keep producing a high quality of music? I mean, what what's your secret or do you just not worry about it? Well, worry uh, first uh, let me just say that every day uh, i wake up there is a certain kind of weird anticipation anxiety about whether or not i'm going to write a song as good as the one i wrote yesterday am i going to be able to play as good as did, as i did yesterday i mean that's been with me ever since i was a young kid so there's that <laughs> um i always feel like there's not enough time in every day to sit down and reflect all the things I'm imagining and feeling that I want to turn into music. Um, it, it's, it really is a, a feeling that I've got so much that I want to turn into music and, and I'm just trying to scramble to figure out, to find the time and the, and the right place to do it. Um, sometimes the situation works out really great so like the song like uh sahara uh, which leads off the new album uh i i walked into my studio with a particular feeling uh, about a, a person i was imagining who was lost both spiritually and physically in a in a location and uh i picked up my bass guitar and i started writing the song on that instrument and writing the lyrics for this character and just sort of stream of consciousness about, you know, what's happened to him and where is he in the world and how come his soul is so dark and he's reaching out for somebody to help him. And at the same time, he's wandering the streets of, in some, you know, middle of the night urban decay and, and he's physically reaching out looking for somebody, you know, to, to give him the answer. Uh, and he does come across a, a deity who, tells him that love is the answer and he gets so upset because he can't believe that that is going to answer any of his problems. So this is a really complex character I'm building, you know, and I wrote these lyrics and I recorded the demo right away. Within a few hours, I sent it off to the band and I, I said, we, this would be a great vocal song. And my key, my new keyboard player, Ray Thistlethwaite's amazing singer. I wanted him to sing it. Uh, it winds up not getting done as a vocal song for whatever reason. And I kind of thought, well, I'll do that on some other album. And then my producer brought it back after a month or so and said, we have to do this song, but you, you should rewrite it as an instrumental. And so I had to throw away all those lyrics and all those melodies and start from scratch. But I kept the original thing. You know, I didn't change the subject and I didn't change any of the chords or anything. 
uh, all I had to do was take that melody out that I thought Ray could sing. And I had to say, okay, kind of like what we were talking about before. Now that it's an instrumental, it's a whole different ballgame. I have to convey this message without the benefit of words. So how do I do that? So then, so yeah, that's a lot of work. <laughs> so, so when you go on tour, well, the tour, you're going on tour this year. What was it, has, what's it been like you during the pandemic, not being able to go on tour? Cause you know, you're like a guitar guy. People want to see you. I mean, what is it like <laughs> when you, when you, when you found out, you know, cause musicians didn't know when it, this was going to, open up like we didn't know when you could get out and everyone scares what is that like because you know luckily you're someone who has a following and people buy your albums i mean it's so different now people don't buy a lot of albums from people i mean you're lucky you have that guitar crowd which they love you and the guitar crowd is different than you know the the whimsical oh well that was good we don't want to hear this yeah. what was what was going through your head when you sat there and holy crap the world the, the world's shutting down man it's i like to get on stage yeah, it's been, that part of it's been so difficult for musicians and, and their crews, you know, and, and especially the crews, which work on a different, you know, they work more month to month. A musician like myself, I have like a two year cycle, you know, uh, of, you know, sitting at home, making an album, releasing the album, going out on tour, finishing the whole campaign and then starting over again. So um, I was in a position to withstand a forced vacation, let's put it that way. Um, but crews are, aren't. So that, that was really hard. It was a really strange moment because I was we had to decide, Sony Music and myself, should we release Shapeshifting or not? And my feeling was, I said this to them exactly. I said, look, I'm a musician. My job is to make music for people. There's this horrible pandemic happening and I can't do anything about it. I, I don't know how to make a vaccine. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't know what, but I am a musician and I know people need music. So this is no time to hold back just for business reasons. So let's release the music and we'll figure out how to be present for people so they can we can help them get by because that's that's our job is to, is to provide music now so i knew that it was going to be terrible business wise uh, uh but i also was sort of extremely disappointed that we weren't going to meet the fans and then uh, the flip side of it was i was relieved because i was really afraid for my crew and my band and i thought you know what gall does it take to to force your best friends to go out and risk their lives just for rock and roll. So, you know, you, you realize at some point it's like, no, this is really serious stuff. And there's another way to rock and roll, you know, while we're in this weird pandemic and people are locked down. So we just have to learn some, some new skills uh, in dealing with it. And same thing happened when we realized that the tour isn't postponed by three months or by six months. And that's when I realized wow, shapeshifting is going to be seen as my previous album that by the time I come out again, so I better make a new album. Uh, and so I just got busy thinking 2022, you know, uh, it was it was really frightening to think that we were going to have to suffer uh, with this pandemic so much longer. But I, it became obvious that it was, a, it was a serious situation we found ourselves in. Uh, but again, you know, if you if you're me and and you realize but what's my job you go i'm supposed to make music so i should get busy so you're going to go out live again now when you go to the guitar solo live is it improv i used to do stand-up comedy and i occasionally perform so sometimes you would just go off kilter and then you wouldn't tape it and you go holy crap that was a funny bit and you forget it but you you sometimes go off and you don't want everything the same for a guitar solo do you feed off the crowd? Like if you're just killing it and they're just going crazy, do you just keep going on and killing it and killing it? I mean, how does that work for a guitarist when you have everyone's attention and with your crowd, people will listen. I mean, you could do a guitar solo for two hours and they'd be like, oh my God, Satriani did a two hour. It was the best. I mean, what is it like when you break into a solo? Is it always planned when you're live or how does that work? If you said about the album, when you're live, 
Yeah, it's, you know, it's a really good question that relates to how a set flows. Um, and, and I know you can relate to this because you, you mentioned, you know, your experience at stand-up comedy. You know, if you're doing a one-hour show, you pace yourself and you know that there are some jokes you're going to deliver tight and then others you're going to see how things are happening in the crowd and you're going to flow and you maybe you stretch it out or shorten it, whatever. Um, but if, if you've got 15 minutes and there's nine other guys that are going to jump on stage <laughs> before and after you, then you go, okay, I got to adjust my, my improv here, you know? Um, so we kind of do the same thing. Um, when I'm on stage and I know I've got, let's say we're going to be doing this evening with show that's coming up, uh, in the fall. And so that's two hours plus with, you know, intermission, we're going to be playing a lot of songs. It's going to be just so much fun to finally get in front of the audience again and play a lot of music from the catalog. But, um, I'm going to pace myself on certain songs because I know that it, this is not the song to play around with. Like, you know, when I go to do always with me, always with you, I'm going to try to nail this. Like, and it's usually the ballads where, you know, you, you just don't want to screw it up and you don't want to just be adding all these things that make it sound like some other song. You just keep it pure. Uh, but then when you go to do, you know, you reach the end of, uh, uh, surfing with the alien you realize wow you know it's the end of the night and we played all these songs i think there's room here for some audience participation and some interaction with the band and you start listening a little bit more to what's happening in the room and you deviate from the script uh so i think that happens uh night after night it changes you learn each gig you learn something about how the set's moving how it's flowing and, and that's when you decide whether or not you can improvise or not. Now, how did, how did you get, how did, has Aronoff always played for you? Or is this, uh, I know, because he's plays with Fogarty. He was on my show years ago when I was in L.A. He came in studio. And I'm like, this guy's all over me. This guy could kick anybody's ass. I mean, he's like, just, he, he's such a character. And he's such an amazing drummer. Have you played with him before? I don't, I don't know. Or is it something that's new? Or, and how did you guys meet? We, we actually, he joined Chickenfoot. Uh, after we released our second album and Chad couldn't play, Chad had suggested that we we get Kenny in. And so I toured with uh, Kenny uh, playing with Chickenfoot back in, I don't know, about 10 years ago and um, or, or less, eight years ago, something like that. And, um, and then uh, we did the Experience Hendrix tour in 2019. We did two tours. And during that year, we recorded Shapeshifting. So I've played with him quite a bit in three wildly different situations and uh yeah 2019 was was really great for me experiencing the the kenny aronoff experience (laughs) (laughs) i knew him as a really you know like we all do as that really tight massively groovy drummer uh but when we went out to do the experience hendrix tour we all decided to really uh sort of celebrate the original uh you know hendrix experience we had doug pinnock on bass and singing and so we went out there as a trio we would play 30 minutes every night and i got to to see and hear and play with kenny being a total psychedelic drummer really sort of uh you know celebrating mitch mitchell's style and approach from from that era and it was really great to hear him be completely psychedelic like that and during that time we we did another record uh, and it uh, is shape shifting, which was really a lot tighter, which was interesting. You know, I wrote this record that had a little bit more classic rock leaning, so it was less psychedelic and more classic rock. And the, and so I got to hang with Kenny again, being that tight Kenny drummer that we know about from you know playing with uh, Mellencamp and Fogarty and just on a million albums, you know. Um, but his experiences really amazing his sound is great and you know from hanging out with him he's just one of the greatest human beings ever you have so many guitars behind you now do you have a favorite guitar i mean how is it like like how do you decide if you treat them like babies like you go oh well i'm gonna take this one with me but eh, i don't know i gotta take i mean is it is it like you know i always give my wife a hard time when we pack i get like this part of the suitcase and she gets the rest when you pack mm-hmm. do you feel leaving guitars at home or do you take them all with you 
Oh, well, you know, for a tour, we try to minimize everything that we take because uh, space and weight is money. You know, it just winds up being a cost. I'm the one who pays all the bills. So I'm, I'm keenly aware that if I bring 32 guitars, it's going to be a burden for my crew and uh, the bill, <laughs> the freight <laughs> bill and the trucking bill in the end. So I really, I'll spend... Um, maybe two months prior to a tour figuring out uh, which instruments are going to best uh, represent the songs that are on the master set list, you know, and generally a set list is about twice as big as what you actually play. So you, you kind of mix and match as, as the tour goes on, but you know, it's like sometimes you need the sweet guitar, the heavy guitar, the drop D guitar, the open E guitar, you know, the guitar that's got some special switch or pickup in it. Um, and, and then, of course, there's the show business aspect where you think, okay, I want to make sure I've got a, a white one, a black one, a shiny one, a, one with a crazy graphic, that kind of thing. All those things sort of uh, you have to deal with, I think. And then, it, and then you have to get them in shape so physically they actually feel comfortable. So I work with a local uh, luthier, Gary Brower. I've been working with him for... 30 plus years and he knows exactly the way I like things to feel. So if I get a guitar that, that for show business reasons I have to bring, he'll work on it to make sure that it feels like my favorite guitar, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and, and, uh, if it needs some different electronics, he'll put them in there for whatever requirement you know, like, you know, that guitar is going to be needed for. Um, so yeah, I, I, I tend to try to, go minimum. I don't like having 20 guitars to have to develop a relationship with on a nine week tour. I'd rather have four, but we, we try to keep it to six or seven. Now, I, I just want to ask you, and it's funny because someone asked me about this, you know, you're, you're a very low key guy, you know, you have a great following, you stay out of the press, and then the Van Halen thing came up. What, what has yeah. that been like? I mean, that's got to be like all of a sudden, if 10, 15, 20 years ago, it wouldn't be anything because it's not internet. But now it's like, oh my god, what what happened? I mean, is, has do you just like I don't want to deal with this crap? You're thinking about your tour, but it's got to be something that all of a sudden you see your name like a go like Twitter. Oh, Satriani's, you know, you know, trending. What's that like as an artist? Because it's like I didn't ask for this. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, I've learned uh about that you know social media a long time ago we started on social media in 1995 i mean we were one of the first to start doing live broadcast so uh here in san francisco has sort of been a, a normal thing i've never been dazzled by you know trending numbers um and whether or not you know they because i know they they don't always relate to actual success in month-to-month -month business of someone like myself an instrumental guitarist and so what's always proven to me has been my relationship with the fans, the quality of the music that I record and that I perform live. That is really the, the core of it. So all this other stuff is kind of interesting and fun, but I realize it doesn't matter, uh, you know, uh, if, if suddenly you're, you're, you're trending for about something. It's transitory. It's gone. Someone will trend tomorrow or in four hours. And, and suddenly you'll feel like you're in a vacuum, you know? <laughs> and, you know, what I point out is anytime somebody says to me like, oh, you know, you should uh, sit in front of your phone and play all the songs from your new album. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. That's not what I do. And, and besides, as soon as there's a video of, of a cat driving a car, that <laughs> will get 35 million hits. <laughs> and, you know, the, the cat will not be able to sell tickets, you know, across Europe on a tour like I can. So this is like, stop bothering me with silly requests, you know, and this is important for musicians to understand because it's a, that's what we get hit with every day is people saying, you should do this. You should do that. You should do that. Actually, it helps them. It doesn't really help the musician uh, because, you know, you can't make people listen to your music they have to want to and you have to let them choose it's the most important part of understanding in your mind when you're an entertainer that you can't decide for people you know let them decide your job is to make music 
their job is to choose the music that they like to listen to. So don't bother them. You know. One final let, question. Let, you're, yeah. uh, since you're going on tour, and um, are you going to be working on a new album when you're on tour? I mean, or do you, are you just going to concentrate on this? Because, I mean, you already have a prolific body of work. And so is it something you're going to just say, okay, or there's no rush now? It's not like before when you're going to get this, because like, now you're going on tour. I mean, what is your what is your work ethic like when it comes to putting out a, a new album? Is it something that's already in your mind? The next album, the next Satriani album? I start writing as soon as I know that I can't work on the current album anymore. Like once we deliver it to the record company, there's a few seconds of heartbreak <laughs> because I, I feel like every album could be worked on forever and could be made better. But at some point you have to abandon it. You know what I mean? You just have to wave goodbye and say, I really could keep working on you, but I got to let you go. And uh, so you, you let it go. And then the only way that you save yourself is just to go, oh, I got another idea for a song. And you just, you pour yourself into the future. You know, that's that's kind of like, that's the way I do it. Um, again, because if you sit down and you go, how many people listen to my new album today? You'll drive yourself insane. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's really not, I mean, I think it was Glenn Johns who put it, really well when he said to me one day it's not your job to decide what people will like or not like it's your job to play your guitar so go play your bloody guitar that was his, his the exact quote <laughs> and it, it came in a moment where i was wondering about how to arrange a song and how to tell the band to do something and he was looking at me like you're out of your mind it's like you can't make people like shit you know <laughs> you, you, that's not your job just go out and you know do your job. So uh, I, I, that's, I just get on with it. I just get on with it, you know. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Um, people, go to the website. It's great. Go to Satriani.com. I mean, it's, just, it's got scrolling. We didn't get to talk about your comic book, which interests me too, because, you know, but he has so much stuff. Just go to this website, uh, and you'll love it. And go listen to his new album. You know, you can just go buy it, Elephant of Mars. Just listen to his music. Um, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.